and I think this experience that she's, you know, that she describes of this old, if you saw her, she's this older, frail woman. She's 61, but she really looks 20 years older than that, shuffling along, trying to get to her medical appointments, and which she walks to, walks miles to, because she doesn't have a bus pass. And she goes to sit on a bench with her all of her worldly belongings on her, and she gets moved on. Because, like in a lot of communities, people who are homeless are seen as, I don't know, invaders or or taking up public space that belongs to other people. And so she just, you know, just describes this despair that she feels and the experience of walking four miles to her doctor, which is how she gets there. It takes her, I think she said it takes her like six hours because she basically shuffles along with a tiny sort of shuffling gait, carrying these bags. And she really has goes from bench to bench. And as soon as she gets some rest, somebody comes by to basically tell her that she can't be there. It's heartbreaking and it makes us wonder where have we gone wrong? to leave our most vulnerable members of our society in this situation Mm -hmm. and even worse to see them as the enemy in some ways. That was Dr. Margot Cushell, a professor of medicine at UCSF and director of the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations, as well as the new director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative and our guest this week. Dr. Cushell's research focuses on homelessness among older adults and the adverse health effects associated with homelessness. She developed and continues to follow the Hope Home Cohort, an ongoing longitudinal cohort study examining the causes and effects of homelessness among adults 50 and over in Oakland, California. I'm David Rosenthal, primary care physician, assistant professor at Yale School of Medicine and medical director of the Homeless Pact for VA Connecticut. And I'm Audrey Provenzano, host of Review of Systems, your podcast telling the stories of primary care with the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care and a PCP in the Boston area. Margo, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. So you've published widely on this topic, but one, I think, very noteworthy finding was part of a study you published in PLOS One in 2016 from your cohort that we talked about, Hope Home, which showed that just under half of older adults first became homeless after age 50, which, you know, is a, is a really striking finding. And, you know, you've written that it's kind of a really dramatic demographic shift from homeless individuals in the past when homeless adults tended to be much younger. So it's a really important finding and, you know, obviously has a lot of implications. Can you tell us a little bit more about the finding and um, what you think it means? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I started working on homelessness, we really talked about it as a problem of young adults, maybe people 25 to 44. And over the years, as I was practicing primary care and some inpatient medicine, I started to just realize, gosh, these folks don't look so young anymore. And they and they didn't look like they were 25 to 44. And I had the opportunity with some colleagues to look back. And this was, we published this in early 2006. We looked back on serial cross-sectional surveys of homelessness that a group I was affiliated with had been doing in San Francisco since the early 1990s. And in that study, we found that in um, the early 1990s, only 11% were 50 or over. And by the time that data collection ended in 2003, 37% were. Now it turns out about half of the single homeless adults are over 50. And so that really got me wondering about, are these people who became homeless 
and stayed homeless? Or is there something about this group that Led, leads people become homeless later in life. Um, a colleague, um, Dennis Colhane, who's a demographer at the University of Pennsylvania, was able to do research in the homeless systems and realized that people born in the second half of the baby boom had have an elevated risk of homelessness their whole life. But again, it didn't answer the question of when did people become homeless. Hmm. And so in Hope Home, that was one of our main focus is how did people wind up being 50 and older and homeless? What were their life stories? How did they get here? And we found this finding that you've mentioned, which is that 44% of them have never been homeless before the age of 50. And our, our conjecture was that if someone was first homeless after 50 and had never been homeless before, that their story was different than the stories that maybe the media or people in general think about as people who are homeless, as people who've really struggled throughout their lives with mental health and substance use um, disabilities. And that's, in fact, what we found, that the people who were first homeless before 50 had these harrowing life histories, usually starting in childhood with a lot of adverse childhood experiences, and their lives really never got off to sort of a normal, typical adulthood. They struggled from early on. They had lots of mental health and substance use problems, long incarcerations, and other things. And then they had somehow survived to still be homeless and in their 50s or 60s. But the half who had been first homeless after 50, their stories were very different. They were people who had um, grown up, often married, had worked their whole lives, usually more than one job at a time, but they were working really hard physical work that wasn't very well paid, minimum wage jobs. They tended not to be in unions or other things that would have afforded them job protections. And sometime after the age of 50, something happened. And that something was either they got sick, their spouse or partner got sick, they lost their job because they got outsourced or some other reason and just couldn't compete on the market. Their spouse or partner died or their mom died. We saw lots of people who had been living with their mom in the family home, working minimum wage jobs, and mom passes and they get derailed and find themselves homeless. And I think it really speaks to the fact that while Certainly, people with mental health and substance use problems are at higher risk of homelessness. We should not conflate those problems. That for most people, the reason they're homeless is because of economic challenges, and certainly for this group. I mean, that so resonates with practice that I that I see as well. And there, and I didn't actually think of it in such clear, crystal terms about sort of the before fifty homelessness and and after. And those stories, they, they resonate very clearly. We are seeing a lot more older 50, older than 50. And yeah, um, I think, you know, it's in the setting of in so many parts of the country, there's just such a shortage of housing that's affordable to people at the lower end of the income specter. And that, in fact, it turns out that renters over 50 are some of the highest risk group, the biggest proportion of people who are spending more than half of their income on rent. And when you do that, you just have so little room for error. And so one trauma or one crisis, one person can no longer work, one person passes away, and suddenly you find yourself sort of bewildered and out on the street. And, you know, one of the other things that we're finding is that the health effects are just so devastating. The death rate we've seen is through the roof. Mm. And in fact, the death rate of those who were born, who first became homeless after 50, is actually three times larger than those who were homeless and had been homeless for longer periods oh of time. Oh my gosh. Wow. And, and I just want to actually follow up. I know that previous studies by Jim O'Connell and Stephen Huang has looked at sort of the 
the mortality rates among people who experience homelessness. And, and oftentimes the average at least was, you know, that we've seen is somewhere between 58 and 62, but that was oftentimes either pre HIV heart therapy. Um, this is, this seems somehow different, right? This population. Yeah. I mean, what we're seeing is the deaths, the deaths that we're seeing and, you know, of our initial 350 people who were recruited between 2013 and 2014, we know that 44 have died. And even though the median age when we enrolled people was 57, and I can tell you that the deaths have mostly happened in the younger folks. There's something about being um, having been homeless a long time, those people in some ways were survivors. You know, they've already shown themselves that they've been able to survive. And the people who were newly homeless had these incredibly um, astonishing death rates. But the deaths have been cardiovascular deaths or cancer for the most part. They have not been overdoses. Most of the deaths have been strokes and heart attacks and then cancer. Hmm. You know, usually when we talk about older adults as a group, we talk about folks who are, you know, 65 and older, but you, your group chose to dichotomize at age 50, which was really yeah. significant in the analysis. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in my early fifties and I don't, I don't feel myself like an older um, person, but it turns out poverty is really rough on the body. And we knew from other studies and some preliminary work that we had done, we had reason to believe that folks even in their 50s and 60s would already have a lot of the health problems that we associated with much older adults. And, And that's in fact what we found, that the prevalence of geriatric conditions of things like cognitive impairment and functional impairment and mobility difficulties and sensory impairment was really higher in our cohort with the median age of 57 than we know in population-wide um, studies in the general population of people in their 70s and 80s, um, oh such that yeah, such that you know, a quarter of people had global cognitive impairment. Um, a third of people had executive function impairment. Um, about those numbers, a third to a quarter had mobility difficulties. Had um, had ADL dependencies. About a half had instrumental activities of daily living. ADL dependencies, even though the median age was 57. And I think. One of the cruel ironies for people living in poverty is that poverty takes such a huge toll on people's lives and well-being. And a lot of our benefits that we structure for people to be older, like we recognize that old age is a time where people may need more assistance. And so we have things like Social Security benefits or Medicare, that if you're poor or like the folks in our studies, um, poor and black, because black folks are at such incredibly higher risk of homelessness, um, you might not live to receive those benefits, but you experience those hardships, those um, ways that your body is, is more frail and functioning more poorly in your 50s and early 60s. And that's, in fact, what we saw. And it's, you know, it's one thing to keep working into your 60s or 70s when you're a physician and can have a job where it doesn't require a lot of physical activity, perhaps, and you've had great health care your whole life and you've ate great food and you've gone to the gym. It's another thing to keep working when your job is physical labor and you've, in fact, had poor health care your whole life and poor diet and all these other problems. And, in fact, in your 50s, you may as well be in your 70s or 80s, and in fact, your job is a really tough one, I think that goes a long way towards explaining all these newly homeless um, 
this new homelessness in late life. It's people whose where our expectations of what people can do and um, and what they actually are able to do mismatch, and there's really no safety net for them. No, there's no safety net. And I, I mean, I think part of the thing that was so striking to me about reading this is that it it is just so congruent with the other narratives we're hearing about widening gaps of rich and poor in the United States. As you see in your cohort, one disaster, one healthcare disaster, one job loss can end up someone never having been homeless, suddenly, just completely without anything. Anything, yeah. And, and then I just want to reflect on how difficult homelessness is. So you've described all of the suffering and the, the physical toll that leads up to homelessness in these in these older adults. But then one of the things in your study in the Hope Home cohort is you do some wonderful qualitative work looking at what it's like once people experience homelessness. And one of the interviews that we pulled was just very moving. I'm going to read you a quote if that's all right. I'm curious um, if you could reflect on this a little bit. Someone said, well, when I walk to my appointments and feel tired, I just wait on a bench until I get my energy back. But here, the cops want you to move along and I can't move along. I guess every day that I have to walk, I'm tired. I guess that's the main thing, that I go from bench to bench and feel tired. And this was a 61-year-old woman. Yeah, I, I love that quote. I mean, it's it's horrifying and so poignant. And I think in some ways encapsulates it. The experience of being homeless is so shockingly horrible. And when you add to that the experience of someone who's late in life, and again, I say, you know, we sort of say in homelessness, um, 50 is the new 75, you know, that folks are 60, but we should really think about people like 85 or 90. I think um, there's so much that goes into it. People are not getting any sleep. They have so much shame. They are being treated by everybody, by the general public, by police. People see them as as bad or evil or failed or dangerous, um, and they're just exhausted and they're overwhelmed. I mean, it's hard to imagine having everything that you own on your back, having getting three or four hours a night of sleep at best, um, not having a place to wash up, not even having money for a bus pass, and um, not having enough food. I mean, we we found in our participants that half were food insecure, a quarter were actually very low food security, which basically means hungry. Um, people are scared, they're ashamed, they're exhausted, they are without any of the things that we normally think of as the things that we want everybody to have, most of all our most vulnerable patients or community members. And I think this experience that she's, you know, that she describes of this old, if you saw her, she's this older, frail woman. She's 61, but she really looks 20 years older than that, shuffling along, trying to get to her medical appointments and which she walks to, walks miles to because she doesn't have a bus pass. And she goes to sit on a bench with her, all of her worldly belongings on her and she gets moved on because like in a lot of communities, people who are homeless are seen as, I don't know, invaders or, or taking up public space that belongs to other people. And so she just, you know, just describes this despair that she feels and the experience of 
walking four miles to her doctor, which is how she gets there. It takes her, I think she said it takes her like six hours because she basically shuffles along with a tiny sort of shuffling gait, carrying these bags. And she really has goes from bench to bench. And as soon as she gets some rest, somebody comes by to basically tell her that she can't be there. It's heartbreaking and it makes us wonder where have we gone wrong to leave our most vulnerable members of our society in this situation Mm -hmm. and even worse to see them as the enemy in some ways. Yeah. You know, thinking about some solutions, you, you often write that Housing First, Permanent Supportive Housing, or PSH, could be a solution to dramatically reduce homelessness. Um, and you've actually written in, in a commentary in the NEJM that you had um, some collaborators on that the VA has been using this great success. And so I wonder if you could just define for us, for folks who don't know what PSH is um, precisely, and maybe you and Dave can tell listeners about how you've seen this changing the lives of your patients and what direction you hope policymakers might go with it. Sure. So um, PSH um, has been around now, you know, in, in pretty widely, I would say, since the mid-90s and was recognized in the about 2012 or 2013 as the um, accepted um, federal response to chronic homelessness. So it's really there for people who have been homeless for a long time, for a year or more, or have four or more episodes that have lasted for more than a year, and who have a disabling condition. Not everyone who's homeless needs permanent supportive housing, but those with the highest needs certainly do. And what it is is housing that's subsidized. So generally, people who are in permanent supportive housing, um, they pay 30% of their income on rent, which is sort of the highest level that's accepted that you can still make other payments and support yourself with, with either on-site or closely linked a wide array of services that are voluntary. So the the way to deliver permanent supportive housing that has been recognized by the VA and by the federal government is on something called a housing first basis. And that means that you really offer the housing first and that you don't require sobriety, you don't require that people attend medical appointments or take their mental health medications. You just say, come in, be housed, we're gonna offer you this housing, but we're gonna make all of those services available to you. When this was rolled out in the 90s, it was pretty radical. Before that, the idea was that people who were homeless needed to sort of prove their worth, that they could get a shelter bed if they were clean and sober. Maybe they could get a two-year bed or, you know, and then if they got that and they did a really great job and they remained clean and sober, they could be housed. But what people found was that people, particularly those with behavioral disabilities, you really can't focus on your mental health or your substance use while you're homeless. It's really impossible Mm -hmm. to do it. And the most primary need is the need to have a place to sleep that's safe. And so it really inverted the pyramid and it said, we're going to offer you housing. The housing is your housing. It's not, there are no one's rules you have to follow about curfews or whatever. You have a lease on it. And by the way, we have all of these services nearby that we're going to offer to you and keep offering to you. But if you're not ready to accept them, that's okay too. And it has really been dramatically successful. When I started working on homelessness, people talked about, well, people don't want to be housed or they can't be housed. And, and Housing First has really turned that on its head. And even for the people with the most significant behavioral challenges, upwards 85% or more of those folks can be successfully engaged and can remain housed. And then once they are housed, all sorts of good things happen to them, to their health and the rest. Hmm. 
it starts with the premise that everyone deserves a home. And when you start with housing first, um, at least within the VA, we've seen, I mean, almost a 50% decline in the last few years in veteran homelessness. And yes, it was started for chronic homelessness and, and in sort of ending chronic homelessness for those who have been homeless for either a year or four episodes in you know the last three years. But um, what we've seen is that has been the start to many other programs that have been helpful in doing um, uh, rapid rehousing and subsidies uh, to help uh, with homelessness. And, and, you know, I think the paradigm has definitely shifted and it's definitely given me some of the most joy in my work is working with our HUD-VASH case managers. That's our program through the VA that helps with sort of permanent supportive housing. I recently saw a clip of you on the Hill where you described sort of San Francisco as ground zero for the affordable housing crisis. And yeah. clearly permanent supportive housing is not the mechanism for everyone. So I'm curious if you can speak more about affordable housing and some of the other solutions that you see for places like San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, permanent supportive housing is so amazing because it's sort of proof of concept. And as you say, like, you know, ever it, it starts with this belief that everyone deserves to be housed. And that, in fact, everyone can be housed um, and recognizes that some people have disabling conditions where they need more services. But, but really, what most people who are homeless um, need. Most people who experience homelessness do not go on to chronic homelessness and do not have behavioral health conditions is they just need, they just need housing. And I think that what we're seeing is, you know, for instance, for those folks who first became homeless after 50, if you've managed to, you know, work your whole life and stay housed your whole life and you become homeless because of a job loss, because your job got outsourced and you're 52, you might not need as many services, but what you do need is housing that you can afford. And I think places like San Francisco are ground zero because housing is so inaffordable here. I mean, housing is inaffordable across the whole country. And, and it's important to remember that people who become homeless overwhelmingly come from the group of people who whose income is less than 30% of what we call the area median income, usually called AMI, and that is the median income for whatever the area is, which is obviously higher in San Francisco than it might be in a smaller city in the south, let's say. But the people who become homeless almost exclusively are people whose income is less than 30% of the area median income, and we realize that we are not going to solve this problem unless we dramatically increase the availability and affordability of housing that is affordable to those with low incomes. Right now, just to give you some perspective, nationally, there are currently 35 units of housing affordable and available for every 100 households who make less than 30% of the AMI. In a state like California, we're near the bottom. We only have 22 units of housing available and affordable for those who make less, for every 100 families, households who make less than 30% of the AMI. And so one of my big pitches has been homelessness in all of its form is so devastating to health. And the only way we're going to get to a solution is by creating and maintaining the affordability of housing that's deeply affordable. Unfortunately, when people who talk about affordable housing, which we need at all levels, we desperately need affordable housing of all types. But in fact, when people talk about affordable housing, that means housing that's anywhere up to 80% of the area median income. And for most people at risk of homelessness, that's just too high. They can't, they can't afford that price point. And of course, it turns out it's the most difficult and expensive and, and hard to make the financing work for housing that's targeted for the lowest income. And so I think 
efforts now really have to be on bringing this into our policy discussions and really speaking out as healthcare providers about how devastating the lack of housing is for people's health and to be sure that our policymakers are creating policies that allow for the building and maintenance and sustenance of housing that's affordable to the low, extremely low-income renters. So uh, we wanted to make sure to talk a little bit about interpersonal violence. I know that um, you've led a few interesting studies, the one published in Archives of Internal Medicine in 2003 and one just recently in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, which is looking at sort of victimization and violence, particularly sexual violence. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about these studies in particular and how you've incorporated your findings into your practice. Yeah, I think one of the things that perhaps people underestimate is um you know, people are often afraid of people who are homeless when actually the people who are really getting victimized are people who are homeless themselves. And we found these astonishingly high rates of interpersonal violence or uh, um, or experiencing violence um, while people are homeless. So, for instance, in the study that we recently did in the Hope Home cohort, um, 10% had experienced a physical assault in the prior six months, and 2% had experienced a sexual assault in the prior six months. And in fact, at our second interview, at six months in, when I think people trusted us more, those numbers went up to about 20% of people experienced victimization mm -hmm. in the prior six months. What we found over time is that victimization dropped by half when people were housed. Um, and what's really interesting is one of the things I often hear, you know, one of the most common ways for people to exit homelessness is to move in with family or friends. And I heard a lot of um, distress from uh, service providers and others like, oh, no, if we move them in with family or friends, they'll be less safe. Um, but in truth, I think our answers are pretty darn clear that no matter where, how they moved into housing, they were substantially more safe, like double as safe. Um, and I think that we underestimate the how devastating experiencing these traumas are to people who experience homelessness and how much that should motivate our practice. One is you know, a lot of the intervention now are really focused on people who've been homeless a long time, which is really important. But I do worry that we may not be paying as much attention to people who are newly homeless. And the trouble is, if you become homeless and you very quickly experience a sexual or physical assault, um, you're then going to have significant trauma to deal with. And it's going to, that trauma um, could actually make it harder for you to um, to find housing because it's so um, disorienting for people and it's so traumatic. And, and so I think we think of this as a time of life that is just incredibly challenging for people. I will say that we have really um, moved to trying to incorporate um, universal trauma-informed practices, and I would encourage anyone who works um, probably with anyone, but certainly with people who've experienced homelessness to change their practices, to be trauma-informed, to recognize the fact that when people are responding to you, they may be responding to you in a way that comes from their fear, from their prior experiences, and from their ways their lives have really been upended by these assaults. Hmm. Dr. Cashel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Review of Systems, your podcast telling the stories of primary care with the Harvard Center, Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care. 
I'm Audrey Provenzano, a primary care doctor in the Boston area this week with... I'm David Rosenthal, a primary care doctor at Yale School of Medicine at the VA. A huge thank you to our assistant editor, Parsler Afani, who makes every show possible. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show, and you can share us on social media with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear feedback and suggestions, so you can tweet us at ROS Podcast or at HMS Primary Care. You can tweet at me, at AudreyMPH. And Dr. Cushell, are you on Twitter? I sure am. I'm at, um, at M. Cushell. That's M-K-U-S-H-E-L. Great. And David? I'm at, at David Rosenthal. Great. Or you can email us at reviewsystemspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>